Life Radio. Stories at the intersection of music and life. Welcome to another episode of Music Life Radio. I am your host, Dan Sauter. Music Life Radio is a free podcast available on iTunes and your interwebs at musicliferadio.com and features interviews and stories about and related to music. Today on the program, we feature Kyle Terizzi. He's a San Francisco Bay Area singer-songwriter who performs under the moniker The Plastic Arts. Kyle talks to Music Live Radio about his background, growing up in Tucson, Arizona, his move to the Bay Area, and how he dealt with a serious bout of depression. We also discuss his musical achievements, including his first full-length release entitled Academy Clones, which has won unanimous praise from both local and national press. We hear Kyle perform live tracks from this album throughout the interview. Kyle also runs Shut Up Songwriters, a music collective which includes a weekly audio-video podcast and a recurring video series featuring in-depth conversations and live performances with some of the brightest lights of the San Francisco Bay Area community. Sit back and relax to another episode of Music Live Radio, this one entitled... The Plastic Arts, Kyle Terizzi. Well, welcome, Kyle Terizzi, to Music Life Radio. We're glad to have you on the program. I'm super happy to be here. Thanks All for right. having me. Well, great. So one of the things that we like to ask everybody, just kind of set the story, mm-hmm. is we, I'd like to ask you about your upbringing, where you grew up, and what kind of music you were influenced by uh, when you were a youth. Uh, I was born in Cincinnati, Ohio. I was adopted with my identical twin brother, Brandon. And I guess, I don't know, my family dynamic was that, you know, I had a, a mom and a dad and I had a sister and uh, my twin brother. You know, I was thinking about this question. I guess like my, my earliest musical memories are, I was absolutely obsessed in a very real way with Michael Jackson. Um, <laughs> I remember being a kid in this watching the Moonwalker movie like over and over and over and over again. I mean, a, a thriller, even as terrifying as the beginning was where he turned into, I mean, I would leave the part where he turned into a werewolf at the beginning. Yeah. But I mean, I think the most enthralling thing for me was like the magic aspect of it. Like the fact that he would, Michael Jackson could turn into a werewolf or uh, pixie dust flew off his shoes when he danced or, you know, when he jumped to different things on the sidewalk, like like the, it would light up or something. I mean, that that stuff was like absolutely captivating for me as a kid. and. So I just, like, I wanted to be Michael Jackson when I grew up. It was sort of in a time period, too, where, like, you had to have the tangible object in the room, like the Moonwalker tape, you know, and that thing would, like, wear out or something. And I remember, like, my family was, we were on a vacation, we were in the Bahamas, and I ran into this kid, this other, it was like I had found a parallel of myself. Like, he was obsessed with Michael Jackson, and I, he totally blew my mind. He was like, have you ever seen the Remember the Time video? I was, I was like, no, what, what is that? And he's like, oh, man, he's in Egypt? Eddie Murphy's in it? Like, there's a whole dance scene? And I, my mind was officially blown. And I remember frantically writing my address down for him to send me a tape of this Remember the Time video. So, and I would, I'm sure there's so much embarrassing video my parents have somewhere of me 
and you know pulling the entire family into the living room and like dancing like Michael Jackson <laughs> for them and uh, and uh, so yeah I guess my as a kid anyway my first like most formative memories of music are like <laughs> Michael Jackson. What was your family listening to? Well, first of all, you know I do something similar like I do a podcast as well and I talk to tons of musicians and almost across the board. They all have these very cool stories about like, oh man, like my dad was in a band and mm-hmm. so he had this crate of records. Like I would, I would put them on and it was like, I would listen to, uh, you know, uh, Zeppelin's Houses of the Holy and I was like transported to another world, <laughs> you know? And like I had absolutely none of that growing up. My dad doesn't, and he, to this day, as far as I know, did, like almost categorically does not listen to music. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he was really into talk radio a lot of so all my memories of being like in his car, um, listening to Jim Rome. Uh, the you're in the jungle was like yeah, this yeah, whole yeah. thing, <laughs> talking smack, or whatever it was. And I remember just the dynamic. I know I I understand why my dad liked it. You know that the people would call in and they'd have like the smack down and they would mm-hmm. like talk smack about sports and stuff. But he was a big Rush Limbaugh fan. Occasionally Howard Stern. There wasn't a lot of boundaries. I, I could pretty much do whatever I wanted as a kid, but I think listening to Howard Stern was one thing that he tried to keep away from me. But mm-hmm. um, So my dad didn't listen to music at all. And, and my mom was very much into this certain strain of adult contemporary that when I hear it now, transports me back to like, <laughs> you know, the late 80s. Mm-hmm. Uh, Phil Collins, uh, you know, like uh, In the Air Tonight, or especially songs like Against All Odds. <laughs> and uh, mm-hmm. she was very much into Celine Dion. Laura Branigan, Cher. So, uh, and you know, it wasn't like uh, my parents had a great, uh, even though I do love Phil Collins and stuff like that to some degree, um, my parents didn't have a great musical legacy that they handed off to me. <laughs> so what got you interested in learning to play music? I, you know, I've thought about that. I, I, I'm not, I can't really pinpoint it, but I, I almost wonder if it was the theater because when I was growing up, that's what I did. Um, I was sort of, I really don't have any real, real memories before being an actor, I guess. I mean, I think when I was eight, I started doing theater. And there's this message that they tell everybody, especially people who announce that this is what they want to do with their life. They say, well, you have to be a triple threat. Like, you have to sing, you have to dance, you have to act, and you Mm -hmm. have to have all these ancillary skills that you can call into your thing. And and I I, I took piano lessons as a kid, which I was not uh, enthusiastic about at all. Um, I was put in voice lessons for a couple years, you know, that I never, I, mean, I never practiced. Um, and this is before my voice changed anyway. And, uh, and, uh, but I wanted to play an instrument, but the only one I wanted to play was drums. So that's, that's what I played. Um, and I played that for about six years, you know. Um, what, what made I, you pick the drums? I have no idea. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I've thought about like was, because I wasn't really listening to rock music. I mean, I was listening to some show tunes and, mm-hmm. and, um, and stuff like that. Uh, so, you know, it wasn't like I heard uh, uh, Ringo Starr or, or Buddy Rich and, and, and uh, was inspired or anything. But, but I do remember that when I got a drum set, um, it's like a cheap entry-level Pearl drum set or whatever. I remember I took it home and within the first day, this very intuitively, you know, I sort of took to it like very naturally. I remember just after a couple hours, my mom put on a Bee Gees record and I just started playing along to it and mm. she just couldn't, <laughs> couldn't believe it. <laughs> Didn't know how... Mm-hmm. I could do this. And I don't know if I was playing exactly what he was playing, but I think, you know, the snare on two and four and the, the bass on one and three and the hi-hat playing the eighth notes was just very, very intuitive for me. So Yeah, that's not uncommon. Uh, there are people that are able to gravitate. I mean, for something that can be fairly complex, yeah, 
you know, I'm a guitar player, bass player. I mm-hmm. would love to be able to play drums, but it's not very intuitive. Yeah, that, that's one of those <laughs> things. I think, because, and, I, and I don't want to toot my own horn, but I think I'm yeah. something of an okay dancer as well. I think maybe <laughs> rhythm is just something that's in, intuitive to me. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's almost hard to explain. I mean, I, I've seen people struggle with the drums, and I've definitely heard people who want to be drummers try to play the drums. And I, I've always thought, like, there's there's nothing harder to listen to than somebody playing the drums badly. <laughs> the amb- I'm going to butcher this word, the amb- ambidextrousness of it, you know, the... The uh, doing something with your right leg and doing something mm. different with your left hand and doing something different with your right hand, um, at least the, the fundamentals of drumming came really natural mm-hmm. to me. So you grew up in Cincinnati, or is that where you're born, and then you moved to yeah. Tucson? When yeah, did you yeah, I was born in Cincinnati, and I lived there till I was 10, and then me and my family relocated uh, to Tucson, Arizona, because I think my dad was planning to retire within the next five years oh, or okay. so, and so he wanted to retire somewhere warmer where he didn't have to shovel his way out of the uh, out of the house every uh, you know during the winters but um yeah so we relocated to to Tucson Arizona and that's that's really where I grew up I mean I was there till I was from the time I was 10 to the time I was mm-hmm. 22 so when I think about where I grew up I mean all my formative experiences happened in Tucson, so Arizona. you started acting at eight but you picked it up again when you were in Tucson yeah I mean I, I remember I you know it was just sort of a summer thing when I was living in Cincinnati and uh but I do remember the first thing that I did, I mean, there was already an agency in Arizona that I wanted to, you know, as soon as we moved there that I wanted to, uh, to join, you know? And so, I mean, it was like the first thing we did when we got into town, I remember like getting headshots taken and being driven around Tucson. And it was just a very weird place, you know, um, on the way to like get my pictures taken or whatever. But, uh, you know, found a local theater company there called Life Theater Workshop, which I think is still operating. And uh, taking classes there, doing plays, you know, with other kids, but mm-hmm. um, being pulled up into the uh, adult shows sometimes as well. You know, when they needed a kid, they, mm-hmm. I was sort of like, they would come to me, I guess. But um, yeah, very serious. Uh, I mean, I was like reading Shakespeare. <laughs> like, you know, I mean, <laughs> I, I was really into it and really watching movies like very seriously. And, um, and uh, yeah, I mean, that's. I mean, I, I was certain that was what I was going to do with my life until I, I was about 15. I went to a performing arts boarding school in northern Michigan called Interlochen Arts Academy. And I had gone, I'd spent three summers there studying and um, went to their academy my freshman year of high school to study theater. And, mm-hmm. and uh, I thought my life was planned. Like, I was going to go to Juilliard. I was going to live in New York. I was going to be on Broadway. Like, uh, uh, and then, I don't know, when I was 15, I decided that uh, it wasn't what I wanted to do. And I... I really announced that I was, I mean, the only, and by this time, the only instrument I played was the drums. So I don't know what I thought was going to happen. Mm-hmm. I, was, I guess I assumed I was going to go home and like find a band to be the drummer for. I mean, because that's, mm-hmm. that's all I played at the time. So, But, uh, you know, people say, well, when did you pick up guitar? When did you start singing and stuff? And it's like, I think both, both happened for me in, in, the same, in, the, in the same spot, which is I was going to this boarding school and I came back. Uh, I just went 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 to public school, and uh, I remember sitting in my humanities class in tenth grade, my sophomore year of high school. And humanities, uh, I don't know if other people have this, but it's just like a mix of like history and literature or whatever. Mm-hmm. So it's the humanities. And I remember sitting there, and my brother had played guitar for a number of years. He was like a big Nirvana fan. I would walk in on him, rocking out on his white Fender Stratocaster, <laughs> like you know, listening to White Zombie and Nirvana and The Offspring and all this stuff. And uh, I remember he had this acoustic guitar, and I just remember sitting in there sitting in my humanities class thinking, I'm going to go home, I'm going to pick up my brother's guitar, and I'm going to become a songwriter. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's exactly what I did. I mean, I, I, I marched home. I was really into Radiohead at the time, and I just started like looking online and learning tabs. And, and I only knew two songs. I knew Wonderwall, and I knew Jane <laughs> Says. 
<laughs> and I just remember playing those because it was the only song I knew. Um, I think when I, my friends heard me sing, they liked my voice well enough, so they would mm-hmm. humor me and say, hey, man, play Jane Says. And I would literally play it like six times in a row, and we would just mm-hmm. all have these, you know, drinking and just have these sing-alongs of Wonderwall and, and Jane mm-hmm. Says over and over again. <laughs> well, how I started singing, I mean, I have no idea because growing up when I was doing theater, that was the one thing that I always dreaded. I mean, I, I liked musical theater to the extent that I listened to some of it. Like, I liked Jesus Christ Superstar mm-hmm. a lot. I mean, I used to, I had it on Laserdisc, you know. I, uh, I like, I don't know, I like Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Uh, Rent occupied, like, a big part of my adolescence. Mm-hmm. But um, I hated singing, and I just thought I was bad at it. I mean, I remember there were two girls when I was, like, I don't know, 11 or something. In my, one of my first plays when I was in Arizona, like, pulled me aside. We were doing a musical. Cinderella and I was like the prince and, and I remember that these two girls pulled me aside and explained to me that when I sing I sound like a frog <laughs> and uh, that was it that was encouraging but uh <laughs> so uh, yeah I mean I, I remember every audition that I had to do where I would sing it was just like yeah it's not 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 his strength you know I'm, mm-hmm. even when I went to boarding school I remember I tried to sing heaven on their minds from Jesus Christ Superstar and I got like two lines into it and they're like thank you <laughs> you know we're good <laughs> And uh, it wasn't until, I remember one day we were doing laundry uh, downstairs in our, in our dorm house or whatever with the, my friend Nick, Nick Mayo. And he, uh, and he was a singer. He was really good. And he just sort of complimented my voice. And he, it wasn't like the technicality of it. It was the quality of it, like the, mm-hmm. the gruffiness. Like something, there was something in there that he couldn't, couldn't do, you know, with his training or whatever. And, and I think that was the first time anyone ever complimented my singing. And then I guess when I just picked up the guitar, I assumed that I had a voice, you know, inside of me. Like, I, I guess I just thought if I sang often enough and if I just kept working at it, like, I just knew I'd be able to sing, you know. You don't have to be here. You don't have to see You in time. 
don't have a cave like the others You call it and lose my mind You've been at ship to discover I'm already off of the line You thought I would do what you wanted But pain it cost and more They'd rather lose you come out in there before long But you're wrong, I don't care anymore And will you believe that I'm fine? Will you believe that I'm alright? There's something I'm trying to hide As bad as you wish I were lying Will you believe that I'm fine? Will you believe that I'm alright? There's something I'm trying to hide As bad as you wish I were lying Well, guess how to pay me fine I'm starting out again but it's alright is it any wonder you'd start a fight and that I would get you in time? Is it any wonder you'd start a fight and that I would get you in time? Did you take any singing lessons specifically, or were you just relying on your? Yeah, I mean, when lessons? I was, when I was, uh, not when I decided I wanted to be a songwriter, I didn't. Mm-hmm. But I mean, yeah, I mean. Like I said, when you do acting, they tell you, oh, you have to be a triple threat. You have to dance, sing, and all that stuff. So, yeah, I was put into voice lessons when I was probably 12 or 13 and did that for at least a year. You know? So you, were um, already have, you already had some vocal lessons. Yeah, uh, I, I have two points, though, when I think about that, yeah. which is, one, I don't want to, I don't want to besmirch the, 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 um, the hard work that goes into people who actually train vocally by saying I'm... I'm classically trained because I'm absolutely not. Like, I have mm-hmm. no sense of technique. Um, the only thing I remember from my voice lessons is sing from your diaphragm, but I don't really know how to do that. <laughs> um, so um, it's two things. I mean, I don't, I'm not trying to affect the sort of natural talent sort of thing, like, oh, mm-hmm. like, oh I'm a, I can play guitar, but I've never had lessons sort of thing, mm-hmm. you know. I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to bolster the, like, what people per- perceive to be the quality of my voice in spite of the fact that I'm not trained, but... I also have to be honest and say, I did take voice lessons, but I never practiced. It was before my voice changed. Um, I really don't, there's really nothing that I learned that I feel like I carry into my singing technique today. I don't have any warm-up exercises that I know how to do or, or anything <laughs> like that. So um, I'd like to say yes, because I generally advocate for sort of musical knowledge in those sort of technical areas, but I, I have to be honest and say I really don't know anything about it. So. All right. So when did you start performing and and when did you pick up the moniker the plastic arts funny enough i came up with the moniker the plastic arts in the exact same room that i decided i was going to be a songwriter i was in my 10th grade humanities class and the teacher handed out this um pamphlet that i don't know what it was written about some indigenous people of some locality and uh it said something along the lines of that they were skilled in pottery weaving and other forms of the plastic arts Mm -hmm. And um, I don't know, there was something in the quality of those words that struck me for some reason. I had no idea what that was or what they were. Um, so uh, I, I, for some reason, I just decided in that instant, like any musical project I was a part of was going to be called The Plastic Arts. I even think, I was thinking about this the other day because I was like, oh, your MySpace page is like, you know, how many years old or whatever. And I was like, <laughs> I, and I had forgotten, but I remember I was having a very real debate with myself when I was creating my MySpace page for the first time when you have to type in your band name. And it was like, I was seriously thinking of calling myself the Plastic Arts Underground, which now when I think about it is, I don't know why I would have thought that, but uh, but I remember it was just one of those arbitrary things. Oh, I'll leave it off. And I hit like, you know, submit mm-hmm. or whatever. And then that was my band name. 
that's where the Plastic Arts moniker came out. But in terms of performing, and I've always performed under the Plastic Arts moniker, but um, I think I started performing, I was like 19, I was um, studying music at a junior college in Tucson at Pima Community College. And I was in my music fundamentals class, which is like your uh, introduction to music theory. And um, Bill Campbell was my uh, theory teacher. And he, he read some sort of proposal that I had submitted for a project or whatever. And uh, I mentioned like some composer, like maybe like Olivier Messiaen, or, or I mentioned something that he was sort of impressed with. And he said, well, what do you want to do? Like, oh, how do you know this stuff? And I said, well, I want to be a songwriter. You know, I want to do all that stuff. And he's like, well, how many songs have you written? And I, at this time, I hadn't written a song in my life, but I told him, oh, yeah, you know, I've written a couple songs. He's like, well, hey, I have this studio out in, I think it was like out in Oracle for people who know Tucson. I mean, it's out in the middle of nowhere. He said, like, come out, come on out to my studio, man. We'll start working on your songs and all that sort of stuff. And, and uh, I remember I showed up the first day and he goes, well, play me one of your songs. And I was like, well, I have to be honest. Uh, I've never written a song in my life. And he was like, okay, well, let's just start working on songs. And so, I mean, I remember meeting up with him for like a year and just... But, you know, I mean, I was in this really horrible place in my life. Like, I was, like, super depressed. Uh, I had no work ethic. Uh, I mean, I, I, you know, I say I studied music, but I, I, I really feel like I languished in this period of four years where I was at a junior college, you know. But um, I guess the only thing I gleaned from that time period was, you know, Dr. Campbell was this place, his studio was this place that I was supposed to be working on these songs. And when I got, you know, it took me forever, but once I had about, six or seven songs or something. I remember I, I put four of them on this little demo I called the four-track demo. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just burned like 100 copies of it, you know, and I, would, and I booked a show on, I think it was like August 14th or 19th, 2004 at Epic Cafe in Tucson on 4th Avenue. And, and uh, you know, I had never booked a show before. I, I didn't know that like as a songwriter, you're expected to play only like 40 minutes, you know? And if you get anything more than that, well, you split the bill or you get like three people or whatever mm -hmm. it was. And I remember he was like, okay, you're going to be performing from seven to 10. And I was <laughs> like, perfect. And so, I mean, I remember like I had like s six songs. Mm -hmm. And I was like, how am I going to fill this time? So what I would do is I would play two sets. One would be like my original material. Mm -hmm. And I'd fill the rest with covers of like, Jeff Buckley, Counting Crows, like stuff like that. And then the entire last hour, 20 minutes, hour and a half, whatever it is, I would do all Radiohead covers. And so, <laughs> oh, I mean, people were like, you know, it's so silly now when I think about it, but like, that's, that's what I did, you know? I, and I would play deep cuts, man. Like I would play like uh, Fog or I would play, you know, for people who are Radiohead uh -huh. fans, like I would play like Gagging Order, you know, like B-sides from like Hail to the Thief and like Amnesiac, you know? And, and I would play songs like Idiotech on acoustic guitar, you know, and I remember people used to trip out at that sometimes. Did people but. understand what you were doing at that point in time? or? Well, what do you mean? Did they know you were doing Radiohead songs? Yeah, yeah, oh, absolutely. Oh, okay. I mean, you know, people would come in and, yeah. and, and you know, it, it, nobody. I mean, I, frankly, I wasn't that good, obviously, but I mean, like, I was just starting out. But the response that I did get, people would be like, if I was at like a party or something, you know, it's, a, it's Tucson, it's a good chance you'll bump into people. Like, oh, yeah, man, I saw you at... Because I would book there, you know, mm. recurrently, and they'd be like, oh, I saw you at Epic Cafe, man. You're doing those Radiohead covers, man. That's really cool. I'd be like, yeah. And uh, so that I guess that was sort of my shtick. And, but, yeah, I mean, I, for about a year and a half, I was playing in Tucson. I was just... You know, nobody knew who I was. I was, I was operating in, uh, I assure you, uh, fairly secure obscurity, you know. <laughs> I did that for about a year and a half, and then I stopped. Slowly, slowly I started stopping. I mean, 
um, I say, you know, that whole period I was like going through this really bad depression. I was not really, I sort of felt directionless in my life. I didn't know. I knew what I wanted to do, but I didn't have the skill set or the know-how, like where Mm -hmm. to even begin. Um, I mean, it's, you know, it's a four-year fog of of, like misery for me. But one of the things that started developing is I, I started having these like, creepy like anxiety that I would have and and it's embarrassing to talk about but you know it was I was having tons of gastrointestinal problems like and so all the the production that went around that became so much I really let it get away from me and so I I, my anxiety about performing or going out in public became so much that I I just started like canceling shows at the last minute or not showing up and um I really just sort of dropped the whole thing and until I moved out to the Bay Area, in which I announced to myself, I was mm-hmm. like, in 2007, when I moved out to Berkeley, I was like, I'm going to go out there and get serious about music, you know? But I, I remember I, I told myself before I moved out here, I was like, you better be careful, Kyle, because you can move out there and four years will go by and you'll be exactly, <laughs> exactly where you are now. And that's exactly what happened. I mean, I moved out here, four years went by, I hadn't written a song I hadn't performed. I knew nothing about the local music scene. And honestly, what happened is when I moved out here, all the things that I thought, I I don't know why I thought it would magically disappear, the anxiety, the depression, all that stuff. I mean, I came out here, I got a place, I got a job, life was going good. You know, I was happy where I was working. I thought I was on this great trajectory. And I just remember six months, I hit a wall, like really hard. And I quit my job. I completely dropped all my friends, my family. I didn't, you know, or at least to my family when I would communicate with them, how is everything out there? Oh, everything's great, you know, and they don't know that. But I didn't leave my apartment for like five months. You know, whatever gastrointestinal trouble I was having was like plaguing me. Uh, I was scared to leave the house for more than like 10 minutes. You know, I forget about like hanging out with friends. I mean, everything was, just became this huge production of fear and anxiety, you know, and it, it was just easier for me to stay at home and drink, I guess. But, um, and, you know, I sort of, after about six months, I, you know, I kind of pulled things together a little bit. I got back to work, but it still took me about two years or maybe a year and a half or something like that. But I do remember I was off work one day. It was the middle of the day. I was drinking, you know, by noon or whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember sitting there and it was like, it just sort of, maybe I just had enough. You know, or maybe it was, I don't know, I don't know what it was, but I remember I just announced to my empty studio apartment, I was like, in six months, I'm going to have a record written and recorded. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I, I mean, like, why exactly, did I do that four years ago? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly, I mean, but that's exactly what I did. I mean, I remember mm-hmm. like that day, I just announced it. I was like, in six months, I'm, and I, you know, I've been sitting on the, on the title of the record for years. I already, mm-hmm. you know, even now I know what, like, two, three records in advance. I already know what they're going to be called. So I announced this record, Praise Box. It's going to be out in July 2009, which was six months from, from that time. And, uh, and it was. And that's just when I started writing, you know, seriously to the extent that I tried to make it, you know, a part of my routine. And then that's sort of, that's sort of become my, my life so up to the present. So do you continue to just kind of use that kind of goal-setting mentality to keep moving forward? I do. How, I, how did you deal with your depression? Oh, well, I didn't. This is the funny part. I mean, you know, how did I deal with my depression? I didn't um, for a long time, uh, you know, through the writing of this record, Praise Box. I, I didn't mm. deal with it. You know, I think, now, spoiler alert, but I end up going to therapy. But, uh, you know, when you're, 
you know, when you're depressed, I think a lot of people, they feel like there's something just wrong with themselves. Like, oh, if only I could work harder. You know, if only I could just really do it this time, like set a schedule and commit to it, you know? And that was, that was really like my life for eight years was mm. constantly setting a new goal and like not meaning it and knowing all, all the ways in which I could, re- could reach it, you know, like mm. whether it was school, like, I, you know, I never practiced. I, I rarely did homework. I didn't study. Mm. Um, and always setting these goals and these schedules that I was going to, I was finally going to commit to and become the person I'm supposed to be. And meanwhile, being miserable, miserable because I never did it and not really realizing that the first step was just getting some help for the depression, that it wasn't, you know, it feels like this Ouroboros, you know, like the snake eating its own tail of like, mm-hmm. you know, the cycle. But, um, but yeah, I mean, through the writing of Praise Box, which was my first record, I didn't do anything. So it's a very sad record. And then the writing of my second record, which was Raleigh's Own, which came out in February 2000. 10 I didn't get any help you know and it was only when I started writing my started writing my most recent record which is Academy Clones which is like my first full-length record I started writing the material for that record and I really slipped you know people who who have depression will know exactly what I'm talking about which is you slide into this you go you know you go to the dark side for a little bit and whatever happens happens emotionally there and you get it back together for a little bit you know but on a long enough timeline, like you'd slide back into that place. Friends came and left, now they're gone with the wind I'm waving hello, watching them go Shining as they move in their eyes And I'm going in Coming out of the dark No voice is called pulling me back A road with a train to the end of the station, station, it all looks the same. Gray as a headstone and cold as the grave. The flames get low. Watching this glow Dying or just losing its spark Am I going in Or coming out of the dark Here 
same as it all does The tide pulls me under And I'm cold and bereft Just the same as it was where I left If you love me, then call And tell me, cause I'm losing the mark Am I going in or coming out of the dark? Am I going in or coming out of the dark? I was just in this place where I was drinking every day. Um, I was super depressed. And just, I, I realized that my behavior was getting... And by the way, none of this is evident to the people around me. Like I, yeah, I really feel like I was compartmentalizing my life, not in a healthy way. Yeah. Um, but I mean, that's why it was even more torturous because, like, I feel like people didn't. I was sort of living at the end of the world, and nobody realized what was happening. You yeah. know, um, I, I mean, spooky things. Like I remember one day it was just sort of a misty rain out in Berkeley, and I remember waking up in the middle of the night and just like, just walking, just like walking for like an hour, and like this, <laughs> you know, just real spooky, spooky behavior, and. And I remember um, just talking with my brother one day and I was saying, you know, man, like I'm really back in this horrible place and I, I really need help. And he's, and you know, I'd looked up numbers for therapists and stuff and, and he just told me, he said, Hey man, hang up the phone right now and just call. Mm-hmm. And that's what I did. So, um, I went into therapy like, oh, almost, geez, I think like in maybe April or May, it'll be like two years I've been going mm-hmm. to therapy. And, and honestly, that is has been just making that phone call and getting into therapy was the single best thing I've ever done for myself mm-hmm. in my life. Is this running your family at all? I mean, I guess mainly for your brother since you were both adopted. Is there, do you see a genetic link at all? Uh, you know, I've, you know, not yeah. really being in touch with my biological family. I don't know. Um, I did go to therapy for a little bit when I was mm-hmm. living in Arizona up until the point that I left, but I was, it's like everything in my, in my life at that point. Like it was very noncommittal. You mm-hmm. know, I would, Stop! I would not show up. I would cancel at the last minute, and so I was not engaged in the process at all. You know, I was, you know, what I call a passenger in the process, I guess. But um, I mean, I remember being there. Anyone who's gone to therapy will think this is funny, but I remember like after a month, like just saying to my therapist, like, you know, I really should start. I really need to start seeing some benefits from this thing. You know, it's like after like a month, it's like, well, what do you expect? But I do remember at that point, my therapist said, well, you, you should try to get a hold of your biological family and see, you know, ask them about their history. But um. Yeah, I mean, really no information there. So Yeah, I mean, you mentioned a little bit about the Arizona music scene. Can you comment a little bit more on that? What other types of gigs were you doing? Man, Was I wish. Was a community know, of artists that you were hanging out with? Well, I mean, I, I wish I knew more about the Arizona music scene, but I think uh, I wasn't really involved in it. Um, but yeah, there was a circle of people that I was uh, that I played shows shows with. Uh, I'm still in touch with these people sometimes. I mean, when I go back and I play in Tucson, they come out and see me. You know, they're all doing other things now. But yeah, um, yeah uh, there but was I, a band called. Yeah, when I mean the music scene, I mean the scene you were in involved yeah. with, not necessarily the music scene as a 
larger concept. Or anything. Yeah, I mean, like, I, I just wasn't, you know, uh, there really wasn't a scene that I was involved with as much. I mean, like, I played guitar, so there were some other acoustic acts that I would build shows with. There was uh, a guy named Ernie who had a group named A Life Without Music who I played shows with. There's a guy, Aaron, who used to write and perform as five foot two because he was five foot two <laughs> and now he's down in LA doing comedy but yeah I mean there was a band called uh the bright light and uh, Kelsey and Mark were playing in that group I guess we were our own little scene you know because we didn't really know anybody else uh and we would just play shows with each other you know and it was always I mean I met my best friend Matt Evans he was another guy who was a musician and now he's in Jersey um but uh yeah, I, I, I think we were our own little scene, you know, playing shows with each other. Was it a lot of open mic night stuff or a lot of uh, just uh, scheduled shows? Yeah, I mean, I never shops. open mic. I never yeah. open mic when I was living in Arizona. Um, never. I mean, yeah, and I, I, I regret it now because I'm sure I would have been introduced to a whole a whole new world of things. I mean, my, my only other in, like point of entry in like the, the Tucson music scene or whatever was playing drums i had a friend named noah gabbard who was in a front of a band called bombs for the board which i thought was really great and about the last six months i was in arizona i was their drummer and it was just some of the most fun i'd ever had mm. but i wasn't really around long enough to like meet the other lo local bands and stuff mm. like that but we had a practice space you know and so we met you know we had like you know we heard the other bands but tucson like there's scene um and we were sort of talking about this before the mics fired up but it's a very like sort of the, the bands there are like very heavy metal, very rock, but not mm -hmm. like it's like butt rock, you know. It's not like it's not like Zeppelin rock. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. this sludgy um, Creed butt rock, you know, yeah. like um, just sort of corny and and uh, angsty, but like sort of hollow, you know. And there was like a lot of scream. I mean, this was like MySpace had just hit, so there's like tons of like screamo bands and like. <laughs> Emo was like the thing, you know, yeah. so like there was like Bright Eyes and Saddle Creek and all those bands and stuff, but it was also like, I mean, just a lot of, a lot of skinny jeans and a lot of screaming and a lot of like MySpace. It was like, the, it was definitely like the thing. And what made you uh, move to the Bay Area? Was there anything in specific about it? Uh, not, not specific about it. It was just a city that was on my radar. I mean... I have a half-brother who lives down now in Templeton, and it makes wine down there. And he was up in the city for a long time. Mm -hmm. uh, he worked for, at Rosenblum Winery for, for a while. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, I think he came out here for the whole tech thing when that happened and then sort of decided he wanted to do wine. He went to school for that. Uh, I have a half-sister who uh, lives down in San Mateo. And uh, I had just, you know, I'd, I live in Berkeley now. I had come out here to see some, you know, I had a whole jam band part of my musical life where I was like really big into jam bands and like String Cheese Incident was playing at the mm -hmm. Greek Theater yeah, in Berkeley, yeah. you know. So I came out and hung with my half-brother and went to that show, stomping around Berkeley. I, you know, when I, when I finished high school, I drove around the country for like two months and San Francisco was one of the cities I came to. And I, I remember I rolled into town and I opened the paper and I saw that, you know, I was into, you know, dance hall reggae and like Buju Bantan was playing at some venue that doesn't even exist anymore. And I remember going to that and um, I remember flying out to San Francisco one time with my dad and my stepmom and I remember seeing Luciano which is another reggae artist at Slim's when I was playing music in Arizona I had a friend who was going to Mills College in Oakland and she said hey we I can get you a gig at Mills like if you want to drive out here and play a show and I was like absolutely so <laughs> I did that and I remember playing the show and I was driving back to Tucson I just realized that my lease was up at the end of the month mm -hmm. and whatever it was you know I just made it's like you know all these big chapters of my life when I think about it they all come down to just I at least the way I experience them is I just sort of arbitrarily decided to do something like I was like mm -hmm. 
uh, oh, uh, I'm gonna be I'm gonna become a songwriter. Oh, I don't want to do theater anymore. I'm just gonna go home. You know, mm-hmm. uh, really, I was just like, well, I'm just gonna pack up my stuff and uh, move out to the Bay Area. And within two weeks, I had you know all my crap in my truck, and I was you know driving out to somebody's apartment that I found on Craigslist. <laughs> you know, while I was gonna look for a place in San mm-hmm. Francisco. So yeah. That that's a, that's really how I sort of ended up in the Bay Area. One of the questions I like to ask everybody is, "What does music mean to you?" Oh, you know, uh, it's hard for me to say. I'm not, you know, I'm not in love with music as much as other people I know. Like, I'm not one of these. I I, I don't like proactively seek tons of music. I don't. I, the artists that I listen to, I don't know every facet of their life. You know, I almost think that I, because I don't really believe that people are born to do anything. It's not like I experience music as like oh this is what i was put on the planet to do mm. um i more think of music as it's really that you know i have thoughts and things that i want to say and things that i believe in and music is you know the venue i choose to like express those things so mm. but you know once you once you pick that up once that becomes your mantle and if you're you know writing every day and you just live a, a generally musical life like i i try to try to live it really becomes everything. It becomes like the prison that I experience the world through, what, what I experience friendships and relationships with, and even like big emotional experiences in my life. There's always the, the, the artist in you or the creator in you who's combing it for, for material. You know, it's mm-hmm. almost like a, a, the way a comedian who sort of goes through life. I mean, everything is a joke. Everything is potential material. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, so what is music to me? Uh, I don't know. Now it's just like my... My worldview is sort of like the prism of music. Um, I'd like it. I'd like, you know, hopefully a couple of years from now, you say, well, what is music to you? And I'd be like, oh, it's my profession. I actually, <laughs> I make my entire living <laughs> off music. Uh, yeah. So. Well, what, what, is it, what is your songwriting process? You started to talk about that a little bit. <laughs> really, uh, it really is lyrics. I mean, you know, um, that's what songwriting is to me. It's, in my personal experience, it's always the lyrics. I mean, I sit with my guitar in my lap all the time. So song ideas, m- musical ideas come to me all the time. And I have a little dictaphone that I record these ideas into that are like, it's a chord progression and I start like singing a melody over it. And I, I, I go, oh, I like that. I record it into the dictaphone. And I have hundreds of these like little musical nuggets, mm-hmm. you know. And I only have enough room in my brain for like a dozen at a time, right? <laughs> so like I'll go back and I'll come these and like, oh, I forgot about that. I forgot about that, you know. So, but what I do is uh, once I finish a song, Unless I know the one that's sort of chambered that I have to write, I sort of go back and I listen. And what happens usually is whether it's the chord or the melody, the chord progression or the melody, whatever it is, uh, a, a lyric will come out of that just very intuitively, you know. Mm. Um, so you do write the music first and then kind of fit A little the bit. The, the, a nugget of the music exists. Yeah, okay. like, but yeah. because we, I write in popular, I write pop songs, I write, yeah. you know, it's really the, the actual structure of the music is very intuitive. I mean, yeah. once you know what key you're in, you, there's just conventions of like, oh, well, this is the verse. And then for the chorus, so I can go to the four, I can go to, you know, yeah, yeah. and for the bridge, well, I can just, you know, go to the, you know, the minor six or whatever it is. So those things are very intuitive. I don't really worry about those so much um, because the melody and the chords, I just sort of let be intuitive. Then I just sort of sit down and meticulously work on the lyrics. I mean, I spend 99.9% of the songwriting process to me is the lyric. What types of uh, subjects and topics do you cover? Oh, it sounds like the height of, uh, you know, some people say, would say this is like the height, the height of narcissism, but uh, <laughs> I only write about myself. Uh-huh. Uh, I, you know, and it, it's, I regret saying that only because I hear other songwriters, and I don't know if they're telling the truth, but I, you know, I hear songwriters say like, oh, well, you know, this is a song I wrote from the perspective of a friend, or, or I, I think it was Ryan Adams one time said like, you know, when I write a song, 
if the if the if the narrative leads me somewhere, I don't want to betray that. I'm not going to like bend it to my my personal life, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll just follow it wherever it leads, whether it's true or not. Um, I don't really write that way, and I and I think it goes back. I think it goes back to the part of, you know, where I'm not really here to. I don't think I'm put on this planet to play music or write songs. It's really like the vessel I sort of pour my experience into. Mm-hmm. So I'm really only re- interested in writing about myself, frankly. Um, so I don't know if that's a weird thing, but yeah, I mean the typical stuff like being sad and relationships and mm. and all the things that stick with you. I mean, you know, people always say, well, why is it so hard to write a happy song? And I think it's because those, ex- that, it doesn't, it, those, you know, when you're happy, you're just sort of happy in the moment. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't sit there and think about it, but you really brood and meditate on the ponderous stuff, on the heavy stuff, on the sad mm-hmm. stuff, you know? And so I think, you know, that's really, what, that's really what my songs are about, you know? You also do the podcast, Shut Up Songwriters. Yep. Well, actually, that's more of not, it's not just a podcast. So you can get into more detail about that, but tell yeah. us about Shut Up Songwriters. Yeah, Shut Up Songwriters uh, was something that I, that sort of came from an idea that my buddy Tom Rhodes, who's another phenomenal songwriter that people have to check out. Uh, that's Rhodes, R-H-O-D-E-S, Tom Rhodes. And, uh, you know, when he, he, he recently moved out here as well to play music, and one thing he started doing was curating these shows that were like listening rooms, you know. I mean, I play a lot of gigs where like just the other night I was at Amnesia in San Francisco, and it was great. The place was packed, but you're playing at a bar, and people are half listening to you and also flirting with the girl next to them or drinking beer with their buddies. So it's just super loud. And, and we were saying like, you know what we really need? Uh, I think... I think people should be listening to what I'm saying. It's like, yeah, I think people should be listening to what I'm saying too. So do these shows that are listening rooms, you know? And part of that is the venue. The other part of that is the audience. You know, you have to get an audience that wants that type of show. So that's what he was doing. And he had a series uh, that he was doing just like that, which was sort of short-lived. And when he stopped doing that, I sort of picked up the mantle. I mean, me and him had talked about doing a podcast, so that'd be cool. Or um, so I originally started Shut Up Songwriters as being this umbrella that I would curate events as. So, mm-hmm. And it was going to be called Shut Up Songwriters because the event would be called Shut Up. <laughs> and it's, you know, I said it's going to be three songwriters, um, either in the round or however it's going to be. And it's going to be understood when everybody walks in this room that it's a listening room and that you listen and you give your full attention to the artist. And, and I did that a little bit. I did one event like that. I did another social event with other artists where we all sort of met up and like, played songs for each other and stuff. But it's actually transitioned more into um, a weekly audio and video podcast. And um, more and more, it's going to be becoming a, a video blog as well. And our, our mission statement is, I always say, Shut Up Songwriters is a collective of premier artists fostering more meaningful artistic communication by showcasing performers who are truly deserving of attention to audiences who are willing to provide it which is basically just like a long-winded way of saying like if you give us your if you give us your attention you're going to get a good product you know yeah. i have these business cards that say shut up songwriters we put up you shut up you know <laughs> and uh, so yeah it's you know it's basically a venue that i can like showcase people that i really enjoy and that i really think are substantial and show them in a light that most people don't get to see them i mean Conversations like this, like you and I are having, are my absolute favorite. The long form where you get the story and you really get like the substance of a person. And there's not a lot of venues for that. You know, it's always like the five minute, you know, radio spot where they'll read your Wikipedia article or whatever <laughs> and they'll plug, you know, and they'll, they'll say, they'll, they'll say, I mean, I, I don't have this, I don't have this problem because I'm not on Wikipedia, but, um, you know, they just have to plug the record and the show or whatever. And then maybe you'll play a song and you'll get out of there. But 
if you're like me and you like these long form conversations, you know, I wanted to have something like that for my friends because not everybody, you know, I'm not as much as I, you know, I like the foster quote unquote community amongst musicians in the quote local music scene. I don't think all local musicians are created equal, but for the people that I really enjoy that I really feel are substantial. And then as, a, as a, I guess as an audience member, you have to sort of defer to whether or not you trust my, my judgment <laughs> or not. I mean, that's the risk you take, I think, but that for the people that I personally feel are substantial, that I really, that I really enjoy, that I could create a space where I could give them that platform to sort of have the long form conversation and that this thing would exist on the internet. One, it'd be great press for them. It would give them something to include in their, in their electronic press kit or to add to their website mm -hmm. or just, you know, being an independent artist, a lot of what you want to do is just generate as much content about yourself as you can and just fly as many kites out into the internet, you know, as you possibly can. And I thought, well, you know, I've always had this part of my, my personality about, I, I loved editing audio and like shooting video. And like, I used to just run around with a camera to shoot my friends all the time, just edit them down to these little movies. And these were the things I was doing, like when I was like wildly depressed and not studying and like mm. really like hard on myself. Like, why am I wasting my time doing this stuff? It's just a waste of time. But, you know, as I got older, I realized, well, that, that was, that's what I should have been doing, you know? And, <laughs> And so, um, you know, that's what I picked up. So, you know, it's, it's really an excuse for me to run around and generate content for myself to edit, you know, which are these conversations and then more and more doing more video stuff for, for artists as well. What's a highlight from your program? If there's anything you think somebody should check out. Oh, you know, uh, you know, I always, it's scary to talk about this stuff cause you don't want to hurt anyone's feelings, yeah, you know, yeah. but, um, I mean, there's been a couple moments, especially when I've had people in that I know, and I know by reputation, mm -hmm. but when they come in and you really feel like the force of their talent. One of them was Megan Slankert, who's a local songwriter who I knew uh, through another songwriter who was recently on the, on the podcast as well named Jeff Campbell. But Megan Slankert is this uh, local songwriter. who um, She's absolutely, she's one of the best live voices I've ever heard. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had heard her, I had seen her perform live, which I was absolutely blown away with. I had a record, which was great, you know. But when she came in to do the podcast, and I, we, I, I always start with the video. There's always a performance aspect to the, to the audio podcast as well. And so I remember filming this, and uh, I was blown back by her voice and, and how emotive it was. And I, I just knew, and for some reason, I just, from, just from behind the camera, like, you know, people sit against the window, and there's, like, there's a bookshelf there. And so sometimes the light comes in, and it's not great, you know. But it was like, for some reason, the planets aligned for this performance, like, <laughs> I heard what she sounded like. I saw the light just from, you know, the camera. And I was like, man, I, I really thought I was capturing something special. And um, so Megan Slingard's performance, her conversation is phenomenal as well, but her performance especially was really good. Another one was uh, a songwriter from the North Bay, uh, David Lunning came in and uh, I knew him through a mutual friend of ours, Leah Rose. We were up in Casadero shooting a, a music video for Leah Rose, and we were staying at David Lunning's parents' house. Mm -hmm. And I had never met him, but uh, he gave me a CD or whatever, and, and uh, I came back and I listened to it, and it is phenomenal. Mm -hmm. And uh, so for people who don't know David Lunning, find him and find his new CD. It is so good. But he came in, and he played a song, Bed of Roses was the first song that he played for me for, for the performance. And I just knew. I, was, I knew that he was the real deal. you know. And, and I said as much to him, and I think he uses it as a press quote somewhere. But, and it's what I really look for in all artists. Uh, that I really enjoy is when I when I hear someone perform, whether it's Megan Slankert or David Lunning or Tom Rhodes, my friend, you know, when I met him, I saw him play an open mic and I just ran up to him afterwards and I said, I have to know you. For whatever reason, I, I see someone and it's like a light goes off and I go, oh, I've been looking for you. 
Mm-hmm. You know that whatever that whatever that quality is uh, in an artist, or a per- I mean, it happens in your personal life too. Like whether it's the relationships that you end up in, or your friends. Like you just meet someone, you go, "Oh, we're supposed to be, we're supposed to know each other." You know. <laughs> um, so to me, that's what it is. With um, you know, I really like everyone who's been on the show. I really, really do. But um, Megan Slanker, David. Uh, Leah Rose, my friend who's been on, has a phenomenal performance as well. Tom Rhodes has some of the best videos that we have on there as well. Yeah, Andrew Blair uh, is another songwriter. He has a new group called We Became Owls that just has a really great conversation that we had. And uh, so it's it's sort of I feel unfair because you know I record intros for all these episodes and I always like say, man, this is the best conversation we've ever had, or these are the best performances. But I really feel like you know people really come in and 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 man, they really put up for the thing. You know, they really do a really good job and. I guess it's why, that's why I keep doing it, I guess. <laughs> Let's jump back to your music again yeah. now. Your newest album is Academy Clones. Yep. Can you talk about when that, I think that was released in... Uh, yeah, it came out on, in November 2011 November. Okay. is yeah, when it so came out. out. So just, just over a year ago. Um, yeah, I mean, that record was not only... I mean, when I finished my, my, the record before that, which was Raleigh's Zone, um, you know, this, it was the second record I had written. It was about nine tracks. It was just guitar and voice. And for some reason, I don't know why, but I, I decided, you know, I can't, I can't put a band together. Like, you know, I really still need to, like, write my songs, you know? Like, I, I needed to write more acoustic songs that were just me and guitar. Like, mm-hmm. there was something in the, the craft of songwriting that I hadn't, I hadn't accomplished. You know, there was something in the quality of the lyrics that I hadn't accomplished, you know? And I still needed another acoustic record, which is exactly what Academy Clones is. It's, it's just me and guitar. Every track is, 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 is a single take. It's recorded live. There's no, there's no edits. Um, but, you know, when I started writing the material for that, I, I knew that what I was writing was better than anything I, was better than the material I'd written before. And so this was going to be my first full length. You know, mm-hmm. the first two records were very low stakes. I wasn't playing live. You know, once I had a couple songs under my belt for Academy Clones is when I started playing, I started playing open mics. I started playing shows and stuff like that. So even in the writing of it, I, there was gonna, I knew there was more pomp and circumstance about it. So I sort of had to rise, to, you know, that it was going to be, you know, the other two records I could write and release in isolation. And if they weren't any good, well, nobody really knew about it. Like my friends would have copies of it, but whatever. But this was something that I really wanted to get behind. So I think that's what I, that's why I sort of set that to the plate. But for me personally, and I, and I hope people who listen to it feel the same way. So I'm not embarrassing myself here, but for me, it's an accomplishment in terms of like, this record, more than anything I've written in the past, approaches something like the type of lyrics I wanted to write in terms of the narrative. You know, mm-hmm. I'm one of these songwriters where, you know, I'm not into vague poetics. Like, um, even though most of the music I listen to does that. For me, it's like, I want every song to be one thought from the beginning to end that's completely logical and that you can follow. You know, mm-hmm. so there's, it's very prosaic, but that there's a, there's a poetry in the word choice. You know, it's not like, there's not a lot of metaphors and stuff like that, but there's mm-hmm. something, you know, my, the most poignant things for me is like if I read a novel or I read, or epic poetry for some, or Shakespeare, like it's not just the beauty of the language, it's the truth that it conveys, like mm-hmm. that strikes you like a lightning bolt. And that, those are the things that I try to do, <laughs> that I attempt to feebly accomplish with my lyrics. But for, you know, for whatever reason, Academy Clones for me approaches that more than anything else that I had done in the past. And you just collaborated with uh, Jeff Campbell. You just mentioned him. Yeah. Can you talk about that project? Yeah. Uh, you know, um, yeah, this, it was something that sort of happened out of the blue. Jeff is a guy, he was, you know, one of the first people that I met when I started playing shows. And uh, I really feel this way. I mean, he was the first person that was just sort of nice to me, you know, that sort of gave me the time of day and sort of treated me like someone who was worth knowing, like in terms of the local scene. 
I met him I, at Yoshi's. Uh, there's a, a Bay Area collective of artists called Bay Vibes, run by uh, Charlie Wilson of Sonic Zen Records and a uh, songwriter named Robin Applewood, who used to perform as Dogman Joe. And so they were running this songwriter showcase at Yoshi's in San Francisco that I got on a bill there. But I would just, you know, and before I had the gig there, I would just hang out just to sort of meet people and just be a part of the scene and to get out, you know, and meet mm-hmm. people. And Jeff was one of these guys uh, who I met. I handed him my, a copy of my record, Raleigh's Own, and he was very nice about it, you know. Uh, he liked it, I guess, and he, enough that he invited me when he was finishing up his last record, Stop and Go, to just sort of hang out in the studio while they were finishing up the record uh, one time. And uh, But one day he was on tour, and uh, Academy Clones has been released, you know, and it was just a couple months ago, and he, and he called me out of the blue while he was on tour, and he said, Hey, man, I just had my iPod on shuffle, and your song, I Hear the Truth. It's like, man, that's, that's a really great song. Um, and he just wanted to be a part of it, I guess. And so he suggested that we recut it, you know, with, um, with him on second guitar and harmony. And then he said, well, you know what we should do? We should shoot a video, man. We should just like go to Charlie's place and just like record this thing and shoot a video. And so I really was just, I mean, I was just sort of, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Whatever you say, let's do that. Mm-hmm. So he came over, we rehearsed a couple times and then, you know, uh, at the end of December, you know, right before the new year, we went into Sonic Zen Records in Berkeley, California, and Charlie Wilson did the audio. My buddy Tom Rhodes, you know, manned one of the cameras. We had another mm. girl named Jules, uh, manned one of the cameras. And uh, we just did what I do, which is we, you know, we did five takes, used the third, all the camera shots are live. There's no, in the audio, there's, I mean, there's no comping, there's no pitch correction, there's no punching in and out. There's no edits, you know, it's just a live a live take. Yeah, that's the video. The song is called I Hear the Truth. And you can, you know, you can see the video on my website, theplasticarts.com. You can find it on my YouTube channel. And uh, we, we actually released this, the audio of that video as a, as a single, which you can download for free if you want at, uh, at my Bandcamp website, theplasticarts.bandcamp.com. Perfect. Are there any other websites or locations where people can go to? Yeah, I mean, I got, I, I got my finger in all the uh, <laughs> social networking sugar bowls. I mean, like, you know, theplasticarts.com. Obviously, people can find my stuff there. Uh, you can find and like my page on Facebook at facebook.com slash theplasticarts. Uh, I'm on Twitter at theplasticarts. I'm on Instagram at theplasticarts. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, I encourage people to check it out. And if they like it, to reach out to me and let me know. I'm super accessible. I love corresponding with people. It's actually one of my favorite parts about the whole thing is meeting new people and uh, especially when they tell me they like me. That's like half the reason I got into this thing. So, you know. And then Shut Up Songwriters, that's just shutupsongwriters.com? Yeah, shutupsongwriters.com, uh, which is currently a Tumblr website. I'm going to move it to, uh, to a different host soon. But yeah, yeah. shutupsongwriters.com on Twitter, at shutupsongs on Instagram, at shutupsongwriters. And really, really for me, the crown jewel is is the content that we create. So... Um, the podcast, you can uh, just search for Shut Up Songwriters in the iTunes Music Store. You can subscribe that way. And the videos, which are all on shutupsongwriters.com, but you can also just peruse them uh, on YouTube at, at uh, youtube.com slash shutupsongwriters. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks, Kyle, for being on the program. Is there anything else we missed that you want to talk about? No, I, I mean, we, we covered it all. I mean, uh, you know, <laughs> if we missed anything, let's just say, you know, maybe in a year or so, maybe I can come back and, exactly. <laughs> and fill people yeah. in on what I'm doing. So thanks so much for having me. I mean, these are some of my... These are my favorite conversations to have. So thanks for what you do. I love the show and thanks for having me on. Thanks again to Kyle Terizzi for the fantastic interview. We're going to leave you with a live track performed at Music Live Radio Studios. So this is the first track off my record, Academy Clones. This song is called Waiting for You to Come Dance. 
Jay Brennan and Ren 10 Tiger. That's uh, Bottom of the Hill in San Francisco. Also in Mountain View, California on May 18th, he'll be at the Red Rock Coffee with Decker. And on June 6th at the Hotel Utah. Again, that's in San Francisco. For more show date and information with Kyle Terizzi, check out his website, theplasticarts.com. Thanks again for checking out Music Live Radio. I'm your host, Dan Sauter, and we'll catch you next time.